We are right in the middle of this series that we've called The Life of a King. There it is on the screen, The Life of a King. And for the last month or so, we've been looking at this story of King David. As you know, one of the most well-known kings in all of history, arguably. But I feel like this series today is somewhat odd, right? Because we've now spent these, these five weeks walking through this man's life. And five weeks later, David is still not king. The throne is still not his. There, there's no crown on his head. And, uh, and it's peculiar to you know we've, been, we've actually been talking more about King Saul than we have David so far. So let me just catch you up if, if, uh, if you haven't been with us or if you've missed some along the series before we jump in. Um, remember, this is how the story's gone so far. First, God removed his, his, his blessing from King Saul, right? King Saul was the first king of, of God's people and he screwed it up. In his, in his sin, um, he, he would no longer have the, the crown of Israel. God, God had told him this through the prophet. And God's next step after that was, after he removed the blessing from Saul, was to anoint this shepherd boy named David. That's where David comes into the story. The prophet Samuel um, tells him that, that he will one day be king of God's people. And we, we begin to see God's plan unfold, but really slowly. Not necessarily in, in our timing, but in, in God's timing. Next move, David goes to battle against Goliath and he becomes the most popular man in all of Israel. Remember that? 10,000 he, he killed versus the 1,000 of Saul. And you would think in that moment, right, that, that, that this is the chance. This, this is David's time to be a king. This is, this is when we're gonna see him crowned in, in all of his glory. But that's not how it goes. King Saul's still in power. And for weeks now, we've watched as this sitting king becomes more and more envious and angry, and terrified, and he now makes every move possible to eliminate the threat. Three attempts have now been made on David's life. So last week, we, we ended with this peculiar picture of a man, right, who is, who is supposed to be king, but for some reason, he's crawling out the back window of his house, running for his life because King Saul has sent mercenaries to chase after him. So this morning, that's, that gets us caught up. This morning, we're going to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And we're going to find that, that David is still not king. And here's what happens. Let me just set this up because it's a long one. You're going to have to hang with me because it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a doozy. Um, David's still on the run. He's, 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 he's trying to figure out what's next in his life. And he stumbles back across Jonathan, probably has come back seeking him. The prince of Israel, right? The son of King Saul. And David wants to know, how am I going to stay alive? He asked Jonathan, he says, why is your father so intent on murder? We're going to see that this morning. He says, what have I done to deserve this? And as David speaks these words to Jonathan, Jonathan's in denial. Because remember, his father Saul had promised him two chapters ago that he would not kill David. So the two find themselves at this impasse. David says, he wants to kill me. And Jonathan says, no, 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 he promised me he wouldn't. So they create a plan to figure out just how real this threat is. What we're going to find is David skips a festival, a festival that King Saul had created, and Jonathan's going to find out if David's absence is noticed and if Saul actually cares. So look at this. We're going to turn with me to um, 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. And um, <clears throat> hang with me. We're diving in deep this morning. We're going to read verses um, 1 all the way to... One all the way to, uh, to, to 40. Let's hear now God's word. So then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, 
What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is the sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. David vowed again saying, your father knows well that I found favor in your eyes and he thinks do not let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'll do it for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening instead. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he says he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, Kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward you, shall I not then sin and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his own love for him for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow's the new moon. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the manor was at hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go and find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on the side of you, take them, then you're to come. For as the Lord lives, it's safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat at his seat and at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite. Abner sat by Saul's side, but David was, his place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. My brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he's not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. 
He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. He rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food for the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. He said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy. He said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows, came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go and carry them back to the city. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept with one another. David weeping the most. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Pray with me, will you? God, we, we ask that as we um, now think about this story that you've uh, given us through your scriptures of the, these two men and the friendship that was kindled between them, Lord, we, we pray that you would give us ears to listen clearly for what you would have in our lives. God, we trust that this word is living and active and that by your Holy Spirit, you, you move among us. And so, God, we just pray, have your way. Lord, speak to us clearly this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If a child asks you to articulate to you what makes for a, a true friend, what would you tell them? We were at uh, Carrie Cargill's funeral this week, and I can't remember who had uh, said this word, but they were talking about the kind of guy that Gary Cargill was, and they said he was, he was the kind of friend who, when everyone else was running away, they would run towards you. Is that a good definition? What, what makes for an authentic friendship? Just a few years ago, this question became the, the key factor, a real relevant factor in the Florida Court of Appeals. And the story goes that this, this judge had ruled on this case without disclosing that one of the parties in her courtroom was friends with her on Facebook. And so after the verdict, the, the defense claimed prejudice and, and they appealed the decision. The defense claimed that this, this Facebook friendship proved bias in her courtroom. But the judge, meanwhile, she insisted, not a Facebook friend, was, was, this was just an acquaintance, I'm a public figure. The challenge was really for the appeals court to determine, right? What, what makes a, a friend? What proves that kind of bias? The court eventually ruled that with, with all the algorithms and the, the, the data mining, friend suggestions on, on Facebook don't really mean anything these days, right? It could be two or three people off. You could have somebody following you and not even really know them. But they never figured out the definition of friend. In fact, the case now sits at the Supreme Court. David's in this panic. Did you see that this morning? Last week, King Saul had sent soldiers to his house to assassinate him, right? It's clear that the sitting king wants the tangible threat gone. 
We're told David had fled to Naoth and Ramah, and he has no clue where to turn next. He's so desperate that someone is scattering. He sneaks back home and finds Jonathan. Look at this again in verse 1. He says to Jonathan, where is my guilt? What have I done? Your father wants to kill me. Now remember, Jonathan and David go way back, all the way to the beginning of this story. They've been best friends for some time now. And Jonathan had been promised by his father he would never kill David. We learned that just last week. And he's, he's dumbfounded this, like right, rightly so, right? This, this allegation that's been made. He said, he said, what are you talking about? You're safe. Look at this in verse 2. Far from it, you shall not die. My father would have told me. What Jonathan didn't know, though, was his father was already back to his old ways. It, it was an empty promise all along. This is a lot, a lot of times how you see evil work, right? We've seen this play out on the world stage this week. Promises made, a word given, safe passage for the civilians, promise not kept. And David needed to know, is Saul really going to kill me here or is he just a man with a bad temper? I've got to figure this out. So the two men, they devise a plan. David said, there's this festival coming up. I'm supposed to be there. Here's what we'll do. Why don't I skip it and we'll test the waters? When the king asks where I am, you, you tell your dad, you excuse my absence. And if he loses it, we'll know. But if he's cool with it, well, maybe his anger has calmed down. Jonathan prayed this prayer over David. He said, may the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. And then this is the important part. This is the, this is the piece I want us to focus on this morning. Jonathan sealed his friendship with a promise. Look at this in verse 16. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. It seems to me that when it comes to this idea of, of friendship, right, there's something about that word covenant we should home in on. And from the beginning of the scriptures, we, we learn that our, our God is a covenant-making God. By covenant, I mean a, a promise-making God. Our, our God is a commitment-making God. God made a covenant with Noah, right, to never flood the earth again. He's kept his word. God made a covenant to Abraham, told him that his name would be great and his family would be a blessing. God made a covenant with Israel that I will be your God and you will be my people. And when it comes to the mark of friendship, if, if we were to stand in front of the Florida Court of Appeals and make our case, it might be that we started there, that, that a true friend is a committed friend. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. It wasn't just that direction, though. It was reciprocal. Look at this in verse 17. And Jonathan made David swear, again, his love for him. You know, our day is a, a commitmentless day. Would you agree? I think the concept of, of committing to anything or, or anyone of, of, of enduring time seems odd to us. We don't make vows like this much anymore. I'll give you a couple examples. Just think about like an employer-employee relationship. As they say, you can love your job, your, your job won't love you back, right? But now it's reciprocal. According to the Bureau of Labor, the, the average employee turnover rate nationwide is 57%. They say in some markets, uh, an employee is expected to only last four years in one place. Random fact, did you know that every time an employer has to replace an employee, it costs them 50% of that employee's salary? That's a lot of money lost. Or think about marriages. You know, according to the American Psychological Association, they say in the United States, 50% of all first-time marriages will fail. 
That's one and two. So here's what the world's done with that. Here's what my generation and below is, is really good at. This is our solution. Um, among those 18 to 24, cohabitation is now more prevalent than those living with a spouse. See what I mean? Commitmentless culture. The idea of, of belonging to something, of, of committing to someone for, for an enduring, lasting kind of time in a covenantal way, it's foreign to us. Aside from the, the Costco membership, right? We got that one down. But we're skeptical. We're skeptical of belonging to anyone or, or anything for a long time. And the church isn't immune. I shared with you earlier this year, church membership is down 50% nationwide for the first time last week or last year. So the, the idea of belonging in like a promissory way, it's, it's fading. So much so that scientists have given it a name. It's, it's called commitment phobia. Psychologists say that we, we have this fear, we, we carry this anxiety of getting too close to someone, of, of being known, right? We, 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 we hate making decisions that are going to carry long-term consequences. We want flexibility and freedom. I mean, what if the relationship hits a wave of conflict or an impasse? Like, I need an exit strategy here. Here's the reality, though. Barna Research says that out of thousands of people polled last year, one in five adults Check the box for isolation and loneliness. Because here's the reality. A friend on social media is not a friend. When you think about your closest friendship, just think about this with me. What is, what is it that you love so much about that friend? You know, when I think about my best friend, I, I think about my, my two brothers. Bo both of my brothers know just about everything they need to know about me. So I know that when I need the truth spoken in my life, I can, I can call them, right? That relationship exists. So I call them up and I say, hey, I'm having this argument with my wife, Jen, and um, I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> this is how you know a true friend, right? Without hesitation, like nine times out of 10, we'll say. They tell me, they say, Ryan, you are dead wrong. Get back in line. And here's my thought. They can do that, right? They, they have the, the ability to do that because they know the relationship is not based on, on these conditions of, of my appeasement or my agreement. There is a covenant there. What makes a friend? And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David and he made David swear again by his own love for him. Look at how God's word explains this in, in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 17, 17. It says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You'll know this one, Proverbs 27, 17. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so does one to another. Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You see the common denominator? You see the thread? It's covenant. It's promise, it's endurance. A friend loves at all times. Many friends may come and go, but a true friend sticks closer than a brother. When the world is running away, a friend stays nearby. So Jonathan, he knows David's life is, is possibly in peril, which means his life is in peril because they're best friends. But he goes back to the king's court to carry out the plan anyway. Bible tells us there is a festival of a new moon taking place. That is, in the book of Numbers, every month the, the Israelites would bring about an offering. They would bring an, an animal sacrifice on the new moon as a way of worship. So Jonathan shows up to the party, and David's nowhere to be found. 
just as he and David had planned, he, he tells his father, he says, David sends his regards. And at first, Saul is cool with it, right? He, he thinks, well, maybe this is some kind of a, a ceremonial cleanliness issue. There were certain hygienic requirements to make a sacrifice. But the next day, Jonathan clarifies. Look at this in verse 29. He says, yeah, David asked me to let me go for his clan was holding a sacrifice in the city and his brother had commanded him to be there. He said, if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he hasn't come to the table. Emphasis on if I found favor in your eyes. Saul now knows right where Jonathan stands. And Saul loses it. Right? I mean, look at this. Saul reveals every rage card in his deck. Look at this in verse 20. He, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's your wife you're talking about, Saul. He tells Jonathan, I'm, I'm removing my inheritance. Neither you nor your kingdom will be established. As if he had any control of that anyway. See, by now, Saul, Saul understands his son has taken sides. Jonathan makes it clear. He yells back at his father. He says, why in the world should David be put to death? What has he done for you? And Saul is so furious, right? That this time, the spear that had been meant for David time and time again is now meant for his own son. I mean, not only did Saul break his promise to Jonathan, he's destroyed his relationship to the point of murder. See, a, a biblical covenant, it's, it's not just a, a contractual agreement, right? It's not just a signature on a, a sheet of paper. Covenant is a relationship of love and trust. It's rooted in those two things. Saul destroys it. Jonathan keeps it. Jonathan had assured David, he said, look, however this goes, I'm going to bring you back word, right? But he knew the two couldn't be seen in public again for obvious reasons. So Jonathan tells David to go hide in this field by some stone heap. He said, after the festival, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shoot three arrows just to the side of you as though I'm target practicing. And then I'm going to send my servant into this field to pick them up. And he says, listen to this. If you hear me tell the servant the arrows are beside him, you're safe. Good to go. Green light. But if you hear me tell the servant the arrows go beyond him, you're a dead man. Jonathan goes out into the field with his servant just as he said. And you can imagine like just the heartbreak as he, he's weeping, right? He pulls back this bow three times to shoot the arrows in order to give the bad news to his friend. And as David crouches behind the rocks, he, he hears him yell out into the field, is not the arrow beyond you? David emerges from the rock pile and they're both devastated. We're told the two embraced, they were weeping for each other. And this promise, I didn't read this to you, but this promise is reinforced one more time. Look at this in verse 42. Jonathan says, go in peace. We've sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. It's hard to find a friend like that, isn't it? like a committed friend. I was talking with a soldier year, years ago after coming home from war and um, I asked him, I said, what's the hardest part about being stateside? He had spent quite a bit of time overseas. And I'll never forget what he told me. He, he said, the, the most difficult part by far was he said, I don't know how I'm ever gonna find a brotherhood like I had in those battles. He, he told me, he said, you know, nothing's gonna bond you together with someone like having to trust your friend with your life. 
And again, this, this conflict worldwide now overseas, it's, it's on our minds, so we might as well talk about it. Just think about this. How is it that these men, thousands of them, are leaving their places of safety all around the world, including our own nation, to go back home to their home country to take up arms for their family and friends? 22,000. I mean, that's some kind of friend, right? Just notice this with me. This commitment that Jonathan and David made to one another, it wasn't like an ordinary commitment. This was a covenant based on faith. It was three ways. Jonathan said, the Lord is between you and me forever. He said at first in verse 23, he reemphasized it in verse 43. And as I said, as, as you turn the pages of scripture from beginning to end, you can see why we, we worship a covenantal God. He made two particular covenants that I think we should note. The first covenant is, it was with Adam. It was something called the covenant of works. And this promise that God made to Adam and Eve, it was really simple. As you know, all they had to do was buy works, not eat the fruit. They would walk with the Lord in the garden for eternity. And yet they choose rebellion, right? And from that broken promise now, from Adam and that fall came every broken relationship on this planet. It's the cause of distrust from one another. It's the cause of our fractured families, our broken friendships. It's the cause of heartache and isolation in our families, separation. See, but God keeps his promises, right? And so rich in mercy, God creates a second covenant. We know it as the covenant of grace. And even though we broke our word, even though we came to God with, with the same sin on our hands, God sends his son in, in his grace to bring us back to eternity with him again. And here's the promise, say it with me. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world, he sends his one and only son. That if you believe in him, everlasting life is now yours. Look at how Jesus explains this in John 15. He says, greater love has no one than this, than one who lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends when you do what I command you. No longer will I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. What makes for a good friend? You know, when it comes to our marriages, right, it's not the affection that we have for one another that keeps our relationship intact. It's the covenant that we made before one another before the Lord. Or think about church membership, right? We think of it as like this outdated, archaic practice to set aside. But, but you join a church to make a covenant to now do life together. That in a, a lonely world, we commit to spur one another on, to care for one another, to be accountable when we stray, to, to be there for one another. See, friendship is so fickle in this world. Friends can be bought, right, with, with money and prestige. Relationships come with, with selfish baggage of, of ego and gain and self-promotion. And yet the picture of the church is different, right? The, the church is called to be different than that. You find friendships forging across generations, across economics, life interests, across party lines. See, and as followers of Christ, we're, we're called to relationships that look more like David and Jonathan and less like David and Saul. I'll close with this. NPR years ago wrote, wrote an article on, on something called uh, Friendship Bench. In Zimbabwe, they, they designated these places around civic centers and hospitals, schoolyards, where struggling people can sit down and be safe in this bench, waiting and knowing that someone will come and talk with them. 
And as they take their seat, um, someone working in an office nearby was trained to notice or someone nearby in the parks in their homes, they would take a break from their day and they would just go and join this person in conversation. Psychologists said after a few years of this, they've noted a statistical difference in the mental health of their communities. How much more powerful, how, mu how much more life's changing, how much more transforming is the park bench we're in right now? You know, friendship begins with this, this covenant, this promise that God has made for us in Christ. And it moves, it carries our relationships from that place forward. Years ago, I remind us, our, our elders said we are a church to call home. We, we believe God was calling us to pursue flourishing relationships, right? We said we want to be about neighbors being loved, generations connecting. And so the hope, at least in this place, is that our children will never have to ask us what a true friend is. Because they will have grown up in it and watched it take place in our midst in the Lord. Let me pray for us and ask God to show us what that looks like in our lives. God, we thank you for this, this story of David and Jonathan's friendship, Lord. We thank you for what it, what it teaches us in our lives. God, that we, we serve you in this, this promise-keeping relationship. And Lord, though we've broken our promise before you and one another, you've kept yours with ours. So God, we pray today that in every relationship that we have, God, in, in, in the friendships that we carry, in the business relationships that we have, the, the, the marriage covenant, the family relationships. Lord, would you make the promise that you've made for us in Christ ooze into all those connections in our lives. Lord, we thank you for showing us what faithful friendship looks like and we pray that you would make us that friend. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.